thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. This week, a special Halloween look at the science behind horror films. I'll be finding out how the genre has changed through the ages, how fear takes hold of your brain, and the science being used to make our films even more terrifying. Plus, what does that sound have to do with the shower scene in Psycho? I'm Georgia Mills, and this is The Naked Scientists. This week, some fellow naked scientists and I went on a trip to horror at Hinchingbrook House. It's a Halloween scare fest in Huntingdon, which brings you face to face with the nightmarish characters from your favourite horror films. <laughs> I don't think I'll be able to go all the way through. But in general, yeah, I'm calm, collected, it's going to be fine. I'm feeling okay about it. I. I like to think this kind of thing wouldn't scare me, but I think I might be surprised by myself and actually get scared. I don't know. I'm most concerned about weeing myself. <laughs> it's fair to say there were mixed levels of cockiness from the group, but it wasn't long before we were all singing from the same song sheet. Each room was designed to resemble a different horror film. There was The Shining, there was The Purge, and who could forget Texas Chainsaw Massacre. (laughs) While I wasn't quite ready to admit it while being chased out of a building by a chainsaw-wielding maniac, being scared like this can be kind of fun. One of the best things about Halloween is curling up in front of a good, or as the case may be, very bad, horror film. And I'm not the only one who feels this way. I can't breathe, but yes, <laughs> it was very good. Very scary, yeah. Really good. You enjoyed it? Yeah, wicked, wicked. Yeah, well, she's a second, second time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but we definitely recommend it and we'll come back, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was really good, really, really good. Better than last year, it was amazing. So top marks all round for the scares. And with all the well-known characters from the horror genre running amok, this got me wondering, what's the science behind these horror films? Is there a basis to perfecting the ultimate scare? Or is it as simple as jumping out of a corner, brandishing a shovel? And why do so many of us enjoy being scared? So join me, if you dare, as I take a look at your brain on horror. According to movieweb.com, there are over 250 horror films coming out this year. 
If you include smaller, independent movies, that number could be as high as a thousand. And while horror films often do get critically panned, their popularity is enduring. So when did our hunkering for horror begin? I think human beings have been telling cautionary tales, campfire stories, folkloric tales for hundreds, possibly even thousands of years. That's Simon Brown. He's Associate Professor of Film, TV and Media at Kingston University and the author of Screening Stephen King. We got together for a chat about the genre. It's a broad catch-all category and because genres evolve over time, because they're different, you know, the type of horror films that may be emerging in cinemas now are dealing with different types of iconography, different types of themes than ones that may have been emerging in the genre, say, in the early 1980s. Because fundamentally, what the horror genre is doing is asking us to to consider the things that frighten us and the things that frighten us change. So what are the different types of horror film? There are lots and lots of different types of horror films and they are aligned with, but not exclusively, different ways of trying to scare the audience. So if you look at an early vampire film called Vampire, everything about that film is uncanny and strange and surreal. It draws on surrealism, so everything is off-kilter, everything is strange, everything is a little bit weird, everything is not the way it should be. So you have shadows that move independently of the characters. That's one way of doing it, that's surrealism, that's doing everything off-balance. At the other extreme, you can simply go for the gross-out. You can have films that are excessively violent, excessively gory, and that image of abjection, that image of the body in disarray, that image of bodies being dismembered and the crunching noises of limbs being hacked off or whatever it may be, is another tool in the armoury of the horror filmmaker. And there are many, many things in between. There's suggestion. One of the, the finest horror films ever made is The Haunting, which was directed by Robert Wise in, I think, 1962, where fundamentally nothing happens. They're in a room and they hear banging, and the banging gets louder and louder, and you never know what's making the banging. But it's the not knowing that makes it scary. The horror film is a genre in which you have almost unlimited freedom to do all manner of different things in order to get the reaction that you want out of the audience. So there's gore, there's suspense, there's surrealism, there's the uncanny, and that's just, just a few of the things that you can use. Boo! Let's not forget jump scares. So it seems like as long as you're trying to terrify, anything goes. But how does this emotion work in the brain? Anamika apergis Halter is a scientist at Cambridge University who knows a lot about fear. So fear is a very essential emotion. It's thought to be one of the oldest emotions. As it's for any kind of organism, it's very important to be able to avoid threatening situations. So you have to know when you're in danger and then to avoid these areas or stimuli of danger. We've all been there. There's something in the corner of your eye. A door creaks. There's a shadow in the corridor. You start to feel scared. Your heart rate increases. You start sweating. Your muscles contract. This is what's known as the fight-or-flight response. Your brain has decided you're in trouble, sends out a kind of alarm call, and hormones like adrenaline flood your system, gearing you up to get the heck out of there. Turns out it was only the wind. 
big sigh of relief. But how do we learn which things we should be afraid of in the first place? Ideally, so we don't jump out of our skin every time the wind blows. What happens in the brain when you're learning about something new that's perhaps threatening and you feel afraid because this stimulus is being paired with something aversive, we know that in the amygdala, which is a small almond-shaped structure in the middle of the brain, both of these stimuli come together. So all of your senses that take in what's happening in the environment, that gets transferred through sensory areas to the amygdala. And then also the input about the stimulus that it is a threat also gets into the amygdala. So for example, if I was pairing a shock with a neutral stimulus, then something happens that's called associative learning. And we know that this binding occurs in the amygdala. So the amygdala is central to learning about threat and essentially feeling fear in consequence for a certain stimulus. And Amika has a test she uses in her research that lets you see your amygdala in action. It pairs a random stimulus, in this case a photo of an angry green man, with an unpleasant result, in this case an electric shock. Here you'll see two angry faces and one of them might be followed by a shock while the other one is safe. And it would be up to you to figure out what's going on just by looking at the screen and then feeling when you get a shock. And at the same time, we record your skin conductance responses so we can see when you think you might be getting a shock because what will happen is that your body will start to prepare for this shock and you'll have little increases in skin conductance that we can see right here on the screen. Okay, so in response to being electrocuted by this machine my amygdala will help me associate one of these scary faces with a nasty outcome and start to provide a fearful response which I assume is the sweating exactly yeah that's what you'll be able to see (laughs) well I'm already nervous so (laughs) let's give this a go So I've got two uh, sort of sticky pads with um, wires coming out of them on my uh, two two of my fingers on my left hand. So you're ready? Yeah. Did you get a shock? No, I didn't get a shock from that angry face, green face. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, it's gone. Yeah, gone off the charts there. Okay. Red face now. No shock so far. Oh, no, green face. It went up in preparation, even though you didn't get I didn't one get a time. shock. Oh, I see. So, so seeing that face. It's, so now what we can see in terms of fear learning is then every time you see the green face, we'll see a bigger increase in skin conductance than when you see the red face because you're starting to prepare for possible shock. So after a couple of trials, you will have figured this out and you'll see your skin conductance go up to it. Only one shock needed then before the mere sight of a green face instilled me with fear and my brain kindly got me ready to run away. Not bad. But I also found that fearing something can actually help you cope with it because I stopped paying attention to the computer. Fear learning is almost instant. It's not even necessary to have a lot of these experiences. And... Turn this off. Okay, thank you. I think actually oh, gosh. that you um, 
got an extra response because you weren't paying attention to it for a moment. And then out of the corner of your eye, you, you saw it again and right away got a shock. So it also shows you how being prepared can actually help a bit. Okay, so yeah, like you said, back to the evolutionary basis of fear, being able to predict when something's happening helps you A, avoid it and B, cope. Yeah, exactly. It is a good system. It's just that it, you know, it can go out of order. As you can see today, many politicians try to hijack this system as well by playing into our system of fear and how we can so easily be manipulated to be afraid of things. Is there any evidence that what tends to frighten us changes as we age? I think we habituate to a lot in the environment. So if anything, unless you develop an anxiety disorder, overall I think you'll become less and less afraid of stimuli in the environment. You just become more habituated to all kinds of things that can happen that are in the end not threatening. I mean, I have a very strong memory of being in the cinema, I think I was about seven, and I was watching Disney's Hercules, not meant to be a scary film, but I was terrified and ran out the room when there was a monster. Yeah, I think that children, they also don't have this area of the brain called the prefrontal cortex yet, which is involved in down-regulating a lot of these responses. So also when you're learning about something that it's no longer threatening, this area is very much involved in signaling that it has now become safe. And this area is not very developed in children, so it's very hard for them to learn when things are in fact okay and things are not threatening or to downregulate an emotional response. When you go to the cinema and you see something a bit scary, often when you get home at night you see it again and again and when you're trying to get to sleep it's still there with you. What causes this sort of repetition of the the spooky things you saw in in the film? So what I think that happens is, like I said before, you create a memory of this certain stimulus or object or scene that is threatening. And because that's so active at that moment in your brain, you're still processing it, a process called generalization starts to happen. So if you've just been around like loads of snakes, for example, and quite threatening ones, and you then go for a walk in the dark in the woods and normally you might have a response to that as well if you see you know the stick on the road and you might jump but in that case you're you're primed essentially so your brain system that's involved in uh, detecting things in the outside world so sort of a saliency network is much more active I think at that moment to detect similar stimuli in the environment So then I think you get some generalization where you see things that look kind of like it and your system is already prepared to respond to it. And I suppose that, again, is another result of evolutionary being handy for you to be able to spot something that scared you recently. Exactly, exactly. So next time you're being haunted by witches and ghouls after seeing a scary film, remember... It's just generalisation, and it probably helped your ancestors to avoid being munched on. That was Anamika Apurgis-Houter from the University of Cambridge, here on The Naked Scientists. You're with me, Georgia Mills, and I'm looking into the science of horror. Still to come, is there a formula for suspense? And what does terror sound like? But first, fear is clearly an important system, so how do horror films tap into this? Simon Brown again. You can almost chart the things that we're afraid of by 
looking at the ebb and flow of themes as they emerge and disappear in the horror genre in cinema, particularly, I would argue, in sort of mainstream horror cinema. Okay, let's take a trip through the history of horror. In the 1950s, horror films, it was all about, and these are connected to science fiction, but it was all about the atomic bomb and science gone mad. Uh, at the end of the Second World War, we created something that could destroy an awful lot of people very, very quickly and ruin the Earth and throw radiation into the atmosphere. So what are people afraid of in the 1950s? They're afraid of the atomic bomb. Let's take a look at the 50s. We have Godzilla, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, The Blob, lots of creature features and mutants roaming around on the big screen, perhaps representing our fear of the atomic bomb. So what's next? The big horror films of the 70s are The Exorcist, The Omen, and probably Carrie. There are more, but let's go with those for now. What you've got there is uh, a fear of young people. So Reagan in The Exorcist becomes possessed by the devil. Carrie has telekinetic powers. Uh, Damien in The Omen is the devil himself, or, or the Antichrist. That reflects cultural and generational conflict in America in the late 60s and early 70s. You've got the older generation uh, at odds with the younger generation who have gone through the summer of love. You know, the older generation looking at the younger generation thinking, oh my God, what are you guys doing? And that gets depicted in uh, these kind of classic movies from the 70s. Once you get into the 1980s and the 1990s, again, things start to shift a little bit. What are we afraid of in the 1980s and the 1990s? Paranoia, we're afraid of the government. So that begins to come out in films, the idea of people being taken against their will, taken off to somewhere and tortured, that becomes a thing. Then in the 2000s, in the post 9-11 era, you have a fear of terrorism, of the person next door, of leaving your house and being killed. So what happens is this gets reflected into sort of home invasion narratives, ghosts and spooks and spectres. So I think that's how it works. And if you, if you go back and uh, look at all, all the way through from the 60s to the 70s, I think you can really see these patterns emerging and it's quite a fascinating thing to do. The horror genre seems to provide a reflection on our society's fears of the time. But then again, films from the 60s can still scare us today. And as Simon pointed out, not all films fit this trend. So is there something else going on? Hi, my name is Hank Davis. I am a professor of psychology at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. Hank is the author of the book Caveman Logic, and he approaches horror films from an evolutionary perspective. Adaptations that our ancestors made way back in the Pleistocene era, that means maybe 100,000 years ago, are still with us. They don't go away. And some of those adaptations that we bring into the modern world are good. They're helpful. Some of them are not so good. They, uh, they were a lot more attuned to the uh, Pleistocene era, yet we're dragging them around with us in the modern era. Horror films certainly trade on those uh, caveman uh, adaptations that we carry around with us. And what makes a successful horror film, and you have to understand when we talk about success, we're talking about a billion-dollar industry. So people are pretty strongly motivated to make good horror films, to get them right. 
And from the point of view of caveman logic, from the point of view of uh, evolutionary psychology, horror films are successful because they trigger one or more of three circuits, three cognitive circuits that we carry around with us. And the first I'd call predation. You know, when you look back at the uh, Pleistocene, we humans, or the earlier forms of Homo sapiens, we were both a predator and a prey species. We try to hunt things down and eat them for our dinner, and other things try to hunt us down. The phrase that I always loved is there were antagonistic food sources who were not quite ready to be eaten. But we ourselves were not quite ready to be eaten and were very sensitive to things that prey on us, to a sense of being stalked, to a sense of menace. So movies like Jaws or Alien or Aliens, the follow-up, those play on our sense of being a prey species. Okay, first up, something that wants to eat you. Check. What's next? The second circuit that we carry around with us that makes for good horror films is what I would call contagion or disgust. We are very, very aware of rotting bodies, gore. And it's very good that we avoid these things because they do harbor nasty bacteria that can kill us. So rotting organic matter is not something you want to play with or eat. And we are so sensitive to any signs of it, whether visual or, of course, olfactory. You know, it stinks. We avoid it. And movies that make a big deal of showing us these kind of things are very triggery for us. They, they make us go, yuck. So movies like Night of the Living Dead, where a zombie walks around with a loop of intestine in his mouth that he's munching on, that he's just pulled out of somebody. Or The Exorcist, where sweet little Linda Blair does this projectile vomiting of green stuff. Yuck! Powerful image. Good horror film. There's plenty of gross-out gore on our screens at the moment. The Saw franchise has seen to that. But what could explain all the ghosts and things that go bump in the night? The third circuit that we carry around with us that's very, very triggery is what I would call a violation of a sense of person, what a person is, what we can assume about something that we consider a person. So, for example, a body with no soul. This is a powerful, triggery thing for us. The biggest reason is that you can't reason with it. More than any other species on the planet, ours uses reason. We reason with each other. We are a very, very social species. So, if we see somebody stalking us and we want to say, please, don't kill me, don't eat me, we can have an interaction with it under normal conditions. But if it's a zombie, and zombies are a great um, combination of all three of these triggers. If it's a zombie, the zombie just looks at you with dead eyes. It 
doesn't want to discuss its hunger with you. It will simply eat you if it wants to. You can't negotiate with it. Zombies are also good because they're predators. They carry deep contagion. They themselves are dead bodies, so you don't want to get too close to them. And finally, they won't reason with us. As well as ticking all three of Hank's boxes, zombie films have been on the up. In the 90s, there were 69 of them, but in the 2000s, this shot up to 255. So could they be representing a cultural fear as well? Back to Simon. In the more contemporary situation is that partly the zombie is is about fear of uh, disease and infection. When you think about the number of scares that we've had over the last 10 years, H1N1, bird flu, um, swine flu, this fear of disease, this fear of catching disease. And this becomes very much reflected in the zombie, this idea of the zombie as contagion. When you get bitten by a zombie, you become a zombie. So I think really that's the kind of cultural fear that the zombies are reflecting at the current time. But whether it's a cultural fear or something our evolutionary history has taught us to avoid, why do so many of us pay money to go and face our fears? Back to Hank. Why do we do things that scare us? In general, we seek stimulation, whether it's horror movies or bungee jumping or roller coasters. We simply seek stimulation. Going to see a horror film is very much like jumping in the water but keeping one hand on the dock. We're safe. We know we're safe, and we're going to expose ourselves to some amount of danger. But we also know at any point we can open our eyes and look around us and see uh, the exit signs, see perhaps a friend or a loved one sitting next to us. So it's a very safe way to indulge in this kind of stimulation feel some of its power, but also get out quickly if we need to. And, of course, there are huge individual differences in that. You couldn't get me on a roller coaster, and you perhaps would spend an entire afternoon on them. So there are individual differences. So don't worry if you're not a horror buff. We're all a little bit different. But why would taking your fear circuits for a test drive give you a buzz? I asked Anamika Apurgis Halter what's going on in the brain. All of these systems that are also involved in fight or flight modes also activate your system to be more aroused. And to be in this state is also very similar to, has overlap with other states of more positive types of arousal. So in essence, to have a bit of this extra adrenaline running through your system can also afterwards make you feel nice, especially if you then realise that you're not actually in danger. So some, but not all of us, love to be spooked. And as Hank said, the scarier the film, the better it can do at the box office. So for the second half of the programme, I'll be investigating more about how filmmakers use sound to scare us and whether science can make our movies more terrifying. The idea that we can go to some kind of technique or technological expertise which will, you know, make the decision for us. That will be attractive to to, to a good group of people. 
In this month's Naked Genetics, we're hearing more than ever about the secrets hidden in our genes, from our risk of diseases like cancer to traits such as sporting ability. But just because we can test for them, does that mean we should? Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com genetics. This is The Naked Scientist. You're with me, Georgia Mills, and if you'd like to get in touch, let us know your favourite horror movie moment, for example, it's chris at nakedscientist.com. Or you can find us on Twitter, at Naked Scientists. Now, one of the things I do when a film is getting a bit too spooky for me, I turn down the volume. Because sound is a really big character in horror films. But just what makes a sound scary? There's obviously our associations we take into the theatre with us. Just listen to this dentist drill. Or this alarm clock. Both associated with very bad experiences. I don't like getting up in the morning. But are there sounds we're just more likely to find unpleasant? Dan Blumstein is a professor at the University of California, Los Angeles. I study marmots, which are big ground squirrels, and I run a long-term study of marmots that have been studied in Colorado since 1962. And for this study, we catch marmots, and we mark them, and we release them, and we study them throughout their lives. So I, I know marmots pretty well. I'm enthused about marmots. And I'm, I'm, ca- I'm casually handling um, a baby marmot one day, and we put marks on them. And I'm holding it gently, and it starts screaming, and I almost dropped it. And I wondered why I had that feeling. Why did I have an emotional response to a marmot screaming in my hand? I never had one scream in my hand before. I hear them alarm call all the time. I don't have emotional responses there. And that got me asking, you know, what's going on with this scream? What's going on with this sound? Ladies and gentlemen, the marmot scream. How did you make them scream? Well, we weren't making them scream. We're just gently holding them and, you know, pulling hair from their back to get DNA and putting marks on their back to, so we could tell who they were. And every once in a while they would scream. It's like, oh, no, not again. <laughs> Thankfully, no squeezing of marmots then. But why did this sound have such a pronounced effect? So I'm reading around, looking and listening to screams. And it turns out that Darwin didn't know what marmots were. Like, you know, nowhere in Darwin is the word marmot. But Darwin knew what screams were. Darwin said screams are cries from young to assist um, help from their parents. And I said, okay, that's interesting. And I, all these species scream. And I listened to these hunting tapes, which are horrible things that hunters use as lures to lure in predators usually to, to kill them or trap them. And if you look at the structure of these screams, they're all the same. If you listen to human screams, they're very similar as well. Screams are produced when animals overblow their vocal production systems. What's that mean? Screams are produced when a system becomes overstimulated and works outside its tolerance. So if you turn up your stereo, it sounds good, it sounds good, it sounds good, it gets louder, you know, you're rocking along, and then suddenly it's like way too loud, and the the sound becomes sort of predictably un, unpredictable. It becomes noisy, it becomes, it has rapid frequency shifts, it, it just sounds bad. Well, that's that system is no longer acting in a linear way. And there's a series of these acoustic attributes that are associated with overblowing a system. And one of them is noise. Specifically, it's deterministic chaos, but it sounds like noise. It sounds raspy. It sounds rough. If you don't want to damage your ears by turning up your radio too high, here's an example of a sound without noise. And here it is with not too pleasant. And these things are found in all animal screams and human screams as well. So it sort of seems that there's something because of how screams are produced, there's something common among many species 
that make screams maybe particularly evocative, that we listen to other species' vocalizations and maybe have an emotional response. I'm giving a popular talk about this in L.A. No marmots in L.A., but there are a lot of people that make music and film soundtracks. And, and, I, and I said, you know, I bet this works for movie soundtracks. I bet musicians do this to, to influence emotions. And one guy comes up later and says, yeah, you know, I'm a film score composer and I'm, I study how emotions and music are communicated. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And he goes, I bet you're right. I go, oh, you want to collaborate? And he's like, yeah. So we ended up getting an honor student to work with us. And the three of us sat down together and we're, we're listening to a bunch of these sounds and we're looking at movie soundtracks and we're getting the best movies, uh, you know, the best horror movies, the best adventure movies, the best sad, dramatic movies. And we had a series of predictions. We said that, that these nonlinearities are really emotionally evocative at a fundamental level then we should expect more of them in really scary scenes and really scary movies and fewer of them in sad, dramatic films and things like that. When we scored them, we found something really interesting. We found that these nonlinear acoustic attributes, this noisy type stuff, was overrepresented in climatic scenes in horror films and was underrepresented in sad, dramatic films, suggesting in a correlative way that well, yeah, these, the noise and these nonlinearities are emotionally evocative and they're used specifically to convey, to, to get people's attention and make them aroused. Next, Dan wanted to see how this noise impacted our emotions. He teamed up with a composer, Greg Bryant, and they made Marmot-inspired music to go along film clips. Little ditties either with or without this noise. And what we found was that there were emotional responses to these sounds, specifically the noise and the abrupt frequency shifts, whereby people felt more negative and more aroused when they heard these things. So basically the story is by listening to my inner marmot, I discovered that there's a way to understand why we're scared, what's what's arousing, what's fearful. And what's fearful are these nonlinear type sounds that are produced honestly when animals are really scared. And we listen to these and respond to these because our ancestors listen to these and respond to these. And we listen to these and respond to these um, because they're normally associated with, with bad situations. When animals are normally screaming, they're being killed or in, in serious, dire straits. And they're sort of unbluffable, honest um, messages that you should pay attention to what's going on and, and, and be, be scared. So what about it is unbluffable? When animals are really scared, if they, if they sort of overblow their system, um, they're reliably producing these sorts of sounds. And if they're reliably producing these sorts of sounds only in situations when they're really scared and overblowing their vocal production system, that becomes a very honest signal. Um, there's no reason to necessarily have that if you're not scared, but it might be an inadvertent, uh, honest signal that's associated with being with being scared or cue that others can, can cue into and figure and can associate the, the producer of that sound as being in a bad situation. That was Professor Dan Blumstein from UCLA. And yes, that noise is heavily present in the infamous shower scene in Psycho. So that's one aspect of the soundtrack that can make you uneasy, this noise in the system. But what about the regular music? Janet K. Halfyard teaches courses on film music at Birmingham Conservatoire. 
I do an experiment with my students where I play them the same piece of film with different music. And music has a really profound ability to change the way we believe things are happening. So with this particular clip, it's a man and a woman in one version of the film um, with romantic music, he's in love with her. In the version where I take some music from a horror film, they always say he wants to kill her. Uh, and it's the same clip of film. So music has this ability to interpret the image for us, to anchor it into a particular meaning. Why do you think it has this effect? Music works on us in a very profoundly psychological way. There are certain things that we know about the world we live in from how we hear it. For example, horror film music uses extremes of sound. So it'll use very high sounds, it'll use very low sounds, use very slow ones and extremely fast ones. And part of this is because of the way that this sound registers with what we know about what those sounds mean in the real world. So, for example, with those really low sounds that you'll find in things like uh, Danny Elfman's main title for Sleepy Hollow, which uses great deep kind of Russian choir voices and church organ, you have these very low sounds which tell us that there is something enormous there because the bigger something is the lower the sound it makes and so having this idea of the enormous thing that you can't see you can only hear that's one aspect of how music becomes frightening jaws actually prime example you have those very very deep string sounds and then it starts running towards you. So it absolutely is. You've got this huge thing that is lurking and then starts to run towards you. And that's extremely frightening. It's on the most effective horror music ever written. With the high pitch sounds, it's kind of like someone screaming. Uh, particularly because the high-pitched sounds will often be quite discordant. They'll be clashing and jarring sounds high up. And so you've got the psycho stab chord from the shower scene going... <laughs> and it's just, it is. It's these kind of shrieking, jarring sounds that tell us, again, somebody's screaming. That's the, the kind of the underlay of what's happening there. So there, there are these particular kind of types of sounds, therefore, that say this is frightening to us. Are there any particular notes or chords that are just more scary? Yeah, well, I mean, there, an awful lot of horror music will use minor chords. Um, you've got major keys and minor keys. Conventionally, we think of major keys as being happy and minor keys as being sad or indeed dangerous. I mean, major keys, think of Superman and Star Wars. You know, it's kind of open fifths and it's big and it's bouncy and it's very bright sounding music. And that's partly to do with the major keys. Major keys we think of, we hear them as being stable and ordered. But minor keys have in them notes which you could almost say they were wrong notes in terms of how sound works. That would take an awful lot of explaining, I'm afraid. But minor keys we do tend to hear as more unstable. And so they point more towards things becoming out of balance, becoming dangerous. I think it is no coincidence that the 1989 Batman score by Danny Elfman for Tim Burton's film has Batman superhero with a minor key theme. Not, not like Superman and his 
his his lovely bouncy major key theme. Now you've got this minor key superhero. And there are five separate references to Batman possibly being a vampire in the first 12 minutes of Tim Burton's <laughs> film. So it's really kind of playing on the idea of Batman as a, possibly a character out of a horror film as much as a superhero. In terms of notes that go together, are there any things you can do to make something just sound more eerie? Yeah, I mean, um, if you have two notes which are really close together in pitch and you play them together, they will kind of interfere with each other. They've got a set of frequencies. Purely, again, at the physical level, those frequencies will clash and beat against each other. And that's part of what will create that shrieking effect, particularly when you have two notes played together very high up. They will really jar against each other. And it's unnerving. It says, again, you know, this is wrong. And so I think that's one of the big messages that horror music gives us, is that things are going wrong. I have to say, actually, one of the biggest horror gestures is the use of silence, of actually having no music at all, because then you've got no information. Firstly, that's a much easier job for the composer, I suppose. Much, much easier job for the composer. But they can exploit it by, you know, you have the music and then the music will suddenly stop for a very brief moment and then wham, it kind of hits you with the scary stinger uh, that makes you jump out of your skin. I suppose in in nature we're used to it being noisy, uh, bird song, things like that. And when it stops, I guess something's gone something's wrong. Something's coming, yes. I think a lot of the way that music in horror films works is to play on the way that we expect sound to work in the real world. And yeah, silence is really unnerving. So we've got silence, deep low sounds and high clashing notes, which can all make music more creepy. But apparently there's one interval, and that's the difference between two pitches, that has been used to scare us for over a thousand years. Possibly the most important interval in horror music, if there is a single sound, a single musical sound, is something called a tritone. Doom-ba is how it sounds. Doo-doo. And in the medieval period, they called this the Diabolus in Musica, the devil in music, because it was the most discordant interval that they knew of. And it seemed, therefore, it was the disruptive thing, the devil in music. And composers have been using the tritone forever in terms of evoking evil. You find it in the Simpsons theme uh, as well. (laughs) That well-known horror. Absolutely, but it's there to be disruptive. It's there to be discordant. It's like this constant wrong note. Uh, It's what makes the Simpsons theme so quirky. But if you put it into a different context and actually becomes scary, it sounds so wrong, so discordant, that a lot of composers have written music that puts tritones in. It's like a weird angle. It disconcerts us. We don't necessarily know why, but we know that it's wrong. Janet K. Halfyard from Birmingham City University. Hearing all these tricks to making a soundtrack spooky inspired me to try and compose my own chilling theme for this episode. Of course, there's one problem. I have the musical ability of a tone-deaf donkey, so I enlisted some help. Hi, my name's Anthony. I'm a um, composer. Anthony scored film music in the past, and he's also done a piece for us you might have heard. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. <laughs> I got Anthony on board to see if we could use the science of fear to compose the world's most scary soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what we're going to be doing. I dropped by his composing studio, which turned out to be a laptop with some nifty software installed. 
and that just helps me get all the tracks together so you can choose lots of different instruments and mix them together on different tracks okay so we can we can have all the instruments we want but the only one i can actually see here is a keyboard exactly yeah so everything that goes through the keyboard can be outputted as any sort of sound that you want right so how do we start I think we should probably start with some sort of low bassy note. So uh, let me see if I can find one then. So this would be representing the sort of big unseen menace. Exactly, yeah. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) not quite quite right. (laughs) There's other little sort of sounds. So if I do a really low note on, on this instrument, it does this sound. So it sounds like an insect. Exactly, yeah. I think we should use that, definitely. Yeah, definitely. So we could mix those two bass notes here. So we we could have that one as a sort of underlying bass tone or drone type thing. Have the inset coming in now and then. So we're actually, we're we're getting a plot to our film as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, (laughs) maybe this could be some sort of killer insects or something. So now we've got a plot to our movie soundtrack. I'm sure most filmmakers come up with a plot before the soundtrack, but hey... So next we need some of those high clashing notes Janet was talking about. Perhaps we could have something like, um, use violins, which are used obviously in quite a few film soundtracks and film scores. We could get something like this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to get sued for copy. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) So obviously that's a a, a well-known sound. That's just using the tritone. Ah, the the devil in the music. (laughs) Exactly, that's the one. So that's sort of staccato violins. We could also do something like... Let's have a look at this. And um, one thing we can also do with that, there's a sort of pitch bend pedal here that I can use to make it go... So you said other sort of high sounds. We can have sort of a pizzicato violin, which is quite often used to give a creepy, another sort of insecty kind of feeling, I feel... Like that. Oh, then, I like it. Yeah, so that can also go in the background and then can have it going low to high to sort of build tension. <laughs> That's the insect <laughs> creeping up yeah. the wall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can also have a few other sort of more electronic instruments. Those sort of strange sounds. So that's quite noisy. Yeah, noise obviously is a, is a good way of making people feel uneasy because it doesn't sound nice, basically. Filling the school with noise is a good way of making a person feel on the edge of their seat. Anthony Baggett there. And we'll see if his completed composition gets you on the edge of your seat in a moment. Now, all those tricks we were using, science may have provided an explanation for why they scare us. But as Hank Davis put it, directors and writers aren't going to the science channels to make their movies. They simply know. And they know because they're human. The same stuff scares them as scares the audience. So they can just intuit the sort of things to put there. But maybe science can help give us the creeps. There was a study back in 2008 where scientists at New York University put people into MRI scanners, which can measure your brain activity. They got people to watch clips of Hitchcock production Bang, You're Dead, the Western The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, and the comedy Curb Your Enthusiasm. They found that when watching Hitchcock's work, in 65% of people, their brains tended to respond in a really similar way. This was much less so for the Western, and only 18% of people responded the same way to Curb Your Enthusiasm. So it seems Hitchcock was very adept at pulling our strings. 
But could the same brain scanning technology help us to peek inside the audience's mind and work out exactly what to do to light up our fear centres? The study coined the term neurocinematics and suddenly this was going to be the new frontier of cinema. This technology is already used in Hollywood to help pick out the most effective trailers. So why not movies? Well, the hubbub has since died down a bit. In fact, the website of one of the major proponents of this idea now sells bouncy castles. So perhaps not this massive cinematic revolution. But Dr Keith Bound at Receptive Cinema has been using his own technique to do something very similar. Basically, what I'm doing with Receptive Cinema is really acting as a film consultancy. So the film consultancy is based on my research, and it's really about implementing that research findings in a creative way, so bringing science of suspense in particular in horror films and helping that sort of data and information work more effectively so we can create films that are more scary or more suspenseful in that sense. According to Susan Smith, who looked at Hitchcock's work, there are three types of suspense. One, you, the audience, are in on it. You can see the big bad, but the character in the film has no idea. It's behind you. This is called vicarious suspense. Two, the audience and the character are both in on it. This is called shared suspense. And finally, there's direct suspense, which is where you're worried about something on your own and not any character's behalf. For example, the camera tracks through a dark forest and you're scared a face might pop out at you at any moment. So which works better? Keith showed people short 90-second clips from films like Quarantine, The Descent and Silent House. And then to find out how anxious people were in real time, he measured their sweat using the same technique Anamika used on me earlier. Basically, if you imagine these responses like little mountain peaks in in a signal... So we actually get one curve that comes up as an amplitude. So we know that the higher this curve goes, the more intense that person's feeling that experience. And the longer it goes on, in other words, until it reaches a peak, that's the durability. So I measured anxiety by durability, how long the person was experiencing that anxiety response, and also the intensity, and that's based on the height of the actual curve. Now Keith's technique can tell us things that we might not pick up on our own. Consciously we would not know which part of a film clip makes us most scared, certainly by the millisecond. We might know a certain section that made us feel very tense but but what this psychophysiological recording, we can measure it by the millisecond, we can actually understand no, this is exactly, this stimulus here that you've got here when the lighting changed the camera moved or there may be some other factors that we can actually find this is when you've experienced a very intense form of suspense uh, or anxiety in this case Um, so what the psychophysiology does is really pinpoint where we are experiencing this very strong or a weak anxiety response Keith discovered that vicarious suspense that's the one where you the viewer but not the character can see the danger elicited the most strong reaction from viewers This makes sense, as it was Hitchcock's favourite form of tension. But also, contrary to what you might expect, people's anxiety in a scene actually dropped once you could see the threat, especially when jump cuts were used. What people really responded to was a close-up of the petrified face of the victim. So now Keith can use these and more findings to advise filmmakers exactly how to elicit the best response from people. But surely everyone is different. 
You won't have an exact formula for everyone. I have to make that quite clear. Everyone has a different preference. But I mean, what I did find is that you can get in the clips that I like quarantine. I mentioned earlier the vicarious one, a very strong one. That did have a very consistent, very strong, intense anxiety responses. But there weren't many of them. You don't get lots of hundreds of these things happening in the clip. But at the same time, as you you will get other ones that will have a weaker response to the same stimulus. Because remember, people bring a lot of things from their past into the cinema. Basically, when you go see a horror film, you're going to create a mood that you're going to get frightened or scared. Or you're going to put yourself in a mood of what you want to be when you watch that film. And that mood then, what happens is your brain will start picking out any element in that film to support that mood. So your fear is likely to in- intensify. But like you said, it does depend on certain elements um, and not everyone will have the sa- exactly the same result. They may have an anxiety response, but some will have stronger and some may have weaker. Dr Keith Bound from Receptive Cinema. So maybe science will be able to make our films more scary in the future, but to be honest, they're doing a fairly good job of scaring the pants off of us already. So next time you're watching a horror and in dire need of a sofa to hide behind, perhaps you can distract yourself by remembering it's all in the amygdala. And now you know exactly how these directors are trying to scare you and just why it works. I'm off to the cinema. A huge thank you to all of my guests this week, Simon Brown, Anamika Apurgis-Houter, Hank Davis, Dan Blumstein, Janet Halfyard, Anthony Baggett and Keith Bound. Next week on the programme, we'll be charting the origin of our species. What makes us human? Do join us then. In the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, you can tweet at Naked Scientist or you can find us on Facebook. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Georgia Mills and thank you for listening. And to play us out, if you think you can handle it, the scientific and musical imaginings of Anthony Baggett. Could that be an insect behind you? Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.